We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. You know, time marches on for us and for architecture. There are scores and scores of buildings in our area that have secrets, secrets about former lives. They were born for one purpose and now serve another. Leave it to local author historian Nene Harris to reveal those secrets. Her latest book, number 15, I think, is This Used to Be St. Louis. It's a wonderful expose of what lurks beneath the surface of many famous and not-so-famous landmarks. She's with me in studio. Nene, welcome. Great to see you again. It's great to be here. Thank you. You, you just keep at it. You know, there, there is so much that you have here in this book, I think 89 different properties. Uh, where do you start on something like this? Oh, the difficulty is not starting. It's limiting yourself. Our city is so remarkable and has such a rich history. And to try to narrow yourself to pick 80 or 90 sites is really, really difficult. Each one has a different twist and turn through the layered history of St. Louis. Layered history, that is the key to this whole subject, isn't it? Yes, and if you look at St. Louis's history versus many places in America, many places have a significance in one phase or one role in American history. We were out on the Chisholm Trail years ago. It was fascinating. You're in this town and you learn all about when the Chisholm Trail comes Mm. to that town, and then you're done. St. Louis, we're a colonial, a French town in a Spanish colonial area, We have Indian population here in the colonial era, free African-American population and African-Americans living enslaved in the same town. And that's just during the colonial era. Any building of a certain age, then, you can scratch almost any one of them, and you're going to find something uh, something different than what you're looking at right now. Well, that's it. And and there are so many different ethnic groups that come to St. Louis, and each one brings their culture and their story and enriches the entire culture of St. Louis. And in many of the buildings— You find multiple stories, like the Henry Miller Museum on Martin Luther King, which was Franklin Avenue, where there were Orthodox Jews from Russia living. There um, were—at one time, it was home to a Chinese laundry. There was um, a Greek diner in the building at one time. There are all these different ethnic groups— and today it's a museum recognizing the fact that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, they were founded in that building in 1891. Today that organization, that union, has over 700,000 members, mm-hmm. and it began over a saloon on Franklin Avenue. 
You know, I think we would certainly expect to find uh, stories behind the stories, if you will, in, in the older neighborhoods, uh, Soulard, Lafayette Square, and places like that. And I'm sure it will, we'll get to some of those. But what about others that we might not think of that uh, maybe came as a surprise to you? N- newer, less, less uh, historic neighborhoods. Well, I had a great time following the stories of our baseball players. Stan Musial, he and Lillian both came from such a poor background. When he was growing up, he couldn't have even um, a baseball bat or a ball. His mother made the balls for him to play out of scraps of yarn and cloth and tape. That man becomes this great baseball player. He and Lillian buy a home on Mardell in the Lindenwood neighborhood, and it's on a postage stamp piece of property, a tiny little front yard. But you look at that house, and you know that this couple from a very poor immigrant background, Mm -hmm. for them that house was a castle. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it just holds their beautiful story in it. How do you find these places? I mean, you, you've written a number of books, as I've indicated, and are really uh, kind of prowl neighborhoods and have learned their history for a long time. But how do you find some of these sites that you have in your book here? I mean, they are they are different now than they were way back right. when. Well, one of the things I do is I just read old city directories. I just go through and read the pages, and that's how I started tracing baseball players. I looked right. for where the different homes Stan Musial lived in, and uh, Garagiola and Red Shane Deans. Mm. So I just started reading the directories. I read. Um, it sounds like I have a pretty boring life, doesn't it? I read old no. census records. <laughs> census records are fascinating. Mm. You you find a street, and you find that. On the street in 1930, a large number of the people were speaking Yiddish at home. That tells you what that neighborhood is like. That tells Mm -hmm. you there's a story there, um, that there was a community that was slightly different than the community a few blocks away. Well, once you've determined that, though, how do you continue to scratch, as I say, and find out about the buildings that they lived in? Well, you... um, You go to our city hall. Mm -hmm. St. Louis City has great records, and both in city hall and at St. Louis Public Library. Mm -hmm. Our public library is extraordinary. On Olive Street there, many people don't realize the kinds of information you can find there. Um, For instance, I needed to know what mattresses for working-class people were like in 1890. I found out at St. Louis Public Library in Olive Street downtown. Well, track that down for me. How how do you do (laughs) that? Excelsior. They had in the arts department all these histories on the evolution of the bed and also on mattresses. And they had old uh, reproductions of Sears and Roebuck's catalogs. What you become aware of is what fire hazards there were in our city and all cities because mm-hmm. mattresses were made of excelsior or wood shavings. That was the working-class mattress in the 1890s. The, uh, one of the things I, I found interesting in your book, among many things, was the, uh, the number of parks that you pay specific attention to. 
why why the parks as opposed to the buildings around the parks? Well, sometimes the parks had different uses themselves. Yeah. Um, Benton Park, beautiful, delightful Benton Park, had been a cemetery. It was the city cemetery, and when it was established, it was way out on the outskirts beyond the developed area of the city, and then the neighborhoods were growing out around that park by the Civil War, and so it was decided to move the bodies from that park to another site. Uh, or that space to another site. I would imagine that many of the bodies buried there were the uh, victims of the cholera epidemics that uh, that preceded it. And there was anxiety and fear because they didn't understand how cholera was spread. Mm -hmm. So they had safety and health concerns behind moving cemeteries in mid-19th century. How about Jefferson Barracks? You have uh, you have a, a page devoted to it, too. And, of course, there are a lot of bodies buried in Jefferson Barracks right <laughs> yeah. now. But, but it has other history as well. Well, and, and this came to me from a lady whose um, fiancé and her brother were both in World War II, and she remembered going out to Jefferson Barracks to visit her brother, and we were out at the park together, and she said, oh, when I used to come here, these rolling hills, they're all so beautiful and green now. She said they were all covered with tents. Mm -hmm. And so from that, I started to pursue the fact that Jefferson Barracks became a tent city. I even found postcards of tent cities in Jefferson Barracks because the capacity of the barracks had to grow exponentially during World War II to handle all the incoming soldiers. And the only way to accommodate them all was to set up tents. Well, that was the induction center for World War II That's as well. Right. A lot of traffic through uh, through that particular piece of real estate. A lot of attention also in your book, the book titled uh, "The Lost" or "The uh, I beg your pardon." This used to be St. Louis, uh, St. Louis University. Some property over there. Oh, St. Louis University has done a tremendous job of saving historic buildings and incorporating them into their campus. For instance, the admissions building on Lindell, uh, 3730 Lindell, this wonderful old stone castle. When I went to St. Louis U, it was a a place of great mystery to us because missionaries were coming and going from it all the time trying to get us involved in their church, and we didn't know what their church was. Mm. It was the Church of Scientology. So there was a lot of mystery concerning this building. It turns out that it was originally built as the mansion for an English immigrant, Alexander Houston, back in 1890. And then in 1912... It became the Queen's Daughter's Residence, which was a residence run by a Catholic order for single working women who had come to the big city, and they provided uh, room and board in a safe, wholesome environment and where they had a sense of community. And that closed at the time. Many residents closed for single working women in 1972. And in 74, the Church of Scientology bought it. (laughs) 
and it became their missionary center to try to get us students interested in their religion. And then in 1988, the university bought it and beautifully restored the building. The woodwork is phenomenal, and onyx mantles and murals on the ceilings. It is it's exquisite again. So it's repurposed twice after the original structure was built. Well, three times. Wait, the Working Women's Home, yeah. the Church of Scientology, and, and now, now the and university. Now the so, so it is. Three, yeah. three different uh, iterations, if you will. Yeah. Um, speaking of churches, they, uh, you give a lot of attention to other churches as well. A lot of them have been repurposed and now are, are dwellings, condos, and that sort of thing. Well, the beautiful... Um, Abbey on the Park in Lafayette Square. The congregation started for a Presbyterian church in Lafayette Square in 1875. And in 1878, they built the ground floors of what would be their church home and finished it in 1880, a magnificent stone church with all sorts of Gothic detailing. It closed as a Presbyterian church in 1946, went through a number of other uses, and then, a few years back, was converted into spectacular condos. Mm-hmm. In other cases, there are houses in Lafayette Square that were built as houses, then used as churches, and then and are now restored to homes again. For instance, 1024 Mississippi was a private home built by a German brewer, and in 1918, it became St. Dimitri Albanian Orthodox Church. It, it must be—I I don't want to put words in your mouth or make too broad an assumption, but it must be more fun to go to places like Soulard and Lafayette Square uh, because of the, the, the older nature of those neighborhoods. It's the older nature, and it's also that the buildings kept being reused in different yeah. ways versus areas that— where something has always been a private home or always been a storefront. Mm. Lafayette Square and Soulard went through such radical changes in their community that the building uses changed radically. I I noticed, too, and I've got the address here in my notes, that you're not only talking about buildings, but you're talking about, in one case, a vacant lot at 4460 (sighs) on Del Mar. Uh, That was kind of a little bit different, I would say, from what you did in the rest of the book. Well, the building that was there burned in Mm. 1970. And all that is left is a vacant lot. But it was the Riviera nightclub. And it was the mm-hmm. base of political operations for Jordan Chambers, who was known as the Negro mayor of St. Louis. When he died in 1962, senators and congressmen sent their uh, messages of sympathy, but also former President Harry Truman said he was a first-class citizen. The man was a, a Democratic committeeman who um, had a, a funeral home on Franklin and then the nightclub on Delmar. Mm-hmm. And the nightclub was a thriving, popular nightclub, but it was also an intellectual mecca for African Americans in the city. I wonder why nothing else was built there, why it was left a vacant piece of property. There just hasn't been the economic demand, judging by the immediate neighborhood. But it could happen in the not-too-distant future because you see the strength from 
the West End and Central Corridor expanding north and south. Another interesting thing you do in your book, uh, Nini, is uh, it's also kind of a, a history lesson, and that is talking about the roads that move out of St. Louis into the suburbs. And uh, they were more than just uh, roads to get from one place to another. They were commercial uh, avenues, weren't they, at, uh, mm-hmm. back in the day? Well, one road that I found, I find fascinating, is Bell Fountain, mm-hmm. which was from destination to destination. It was a St. Louis city with people who needed, uh, well, first of all, connecting it with Fort Bellefontaine, which is now a spectacular county park. And in its early years, there was an Indian trading center there. And then the area between became farmland that supplied the city. And it's what we're actually trying to get back to is these county roads like Gravoy and Morganford and Bellefontaine, they they hooked local farmers to St. Louis. The farmers used to come through our streets and and hawk their goods on the state streets in South City, and you got those tomatoes that you knew they were uh-huh. right off the vine. Yeah. The neighborhood, the cooking in the neighborhood, when you walked up and down the streets, you could smell those vegetables. They were so fresh when they were being cooked. That's what I found so interesting about it, because it's fairly obvious as to why, how and why farmers had to get their goods mm-hmm. into the city. But that's not something we think about today. We think about fast food joints and neon and fast all the rest of it. Fast food and our senses have been dulled by them. Yeah. We only have a, a minute left. Is there any one piece of property in this book that jumped out at you, the, maybe your favorite? Yes. <laughs> 2020 <laughs> Washington. Uh-huh. Glamorous lofts, uh-huh. known as the Sporting News. But before that, it was built by Emerson Electric in right. 1919. Yeah. And, and my daddy worked in that building oh, really? when he first came to St. Louis. And that's where the ball turrets were made for the B-17s, that flying fortress, and for the Liberators, the B-24 Liberators. Is that where you started this whole project? Maybe. Uh-huh. Maybe that is. Uh-huh. Well, it's fascinating stuff, as it always is. You've done 14 or 15 books now. And uh, is this your favorite? <laughs> Whatever I'm working. Yes, it's my favorite. Because yes. it's the most recent, the one you've been working and, on. And it it just, I get to tell so many great stories from our city in it, through it. This used to be St. Louis by Nene Harris. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And nice job. We should point out, too, by the way, that you're going to be available at a reading at the St. Louis Public Library, the Carpenter Branch, at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, July 10th. So if you folks want to learn more about the things we've been talking about, and there's plenty more to talk about, be there at 7 o'clock on July 10th at the Carpenter Branch of the St. Louis Public Library. Thank you. Thank Congra- you. Congratulations once again. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.